book of Daniel this morning, Daniel chapter 5. I would like to remind you that we're not studying all the way through the book of Daniel. We'll end in chapter 6 as we look at the lions in Daniel's den. Let's think about that one just a bit. The lions in Daniel's den. We typically think the lion's den, but that den belonged to Daniel. We'll get to Daniel 6 in short time. About 15 years ago, I started a career in education, and I was granted the privilege, I think that's what it was anyway, of teaching 7th graders world history. I wasn't sure that was the task for me. I was much more of a math kind of person. I enjoyed math so much more than history. But the principal said I was qualified and that's what I needed to teach and so I did and as I read through the textbook a time or two I realized that there were great opportunities along the way for me to bring scripture into the public classroom. I had of course to get permission from my principal to do it. Whenever we talked about the rise and fall of ancient empires I would come to that unit that talked about ancient Babylon. And I would, of course, teach the things that were mentioned there in the textbook. But when it came time to transition from ancient Babylon to the Medes and the Persians, I would take out the Bible and I would tell my seventh graders the story that we're going to read today. This story, of course, is not found in a seventh grade textbook for world history. But this is the scriptural account of how ancient Babylon fell. Beginning in verse 1, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine, listen to this now, and they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. I begin with what I call a shallow celebration. Now in order for you to understand the context of this scripture, you have to know a little more than what the scripture tells us. And this is one of those chapters in the Bible that we can actually go to extra-biblical literature and find a mountain of information. As a matter of fact, much of what I'm going to share with you today is found in the writings of a Greek historian by the name of Herodotus. I want you to notice, first of all, the king's name. His name is Belshazzar, and we've been reading in the book of Daniel about Nebuchadnezzar. That had been the predominant king and the one king that we'd followed all along these chapters but you remember in chapter 4, previous chapter, Nebuchadnezzar had a breakdown. 
He was walking on his palace roof and he took credit for all that he had acquired and attained and he said, is this not my kingdom that I've built for myself, for my glory? And the emphasis was on himself. And at that moment, he lost his mental faculties and he began to live like an animal. It was prophesied. God had given him a dream. God had told King Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel what the dream meant. There may have even been opportunities for him to avoid that situation. But still, he lived like an animal for seven years. And then we came to the end of chapter 4, and it tells us that King Nebuchadnezzar came to his senses. And when he came to his senses, he realized what God was trying to tell him. That the one true God of heaven was the only God, and it was to that God that was given all sovereignty and power and that God was the one who appointed men over times and seasons and he began to praise and honor him and we wonder it's just a wonder if that was not the conversion of King Nebuchadnezzar but chapter 4 ends telling us about that last seemingly experience of Nebuchadnezzar we come to chapter 5 and without any recognition or introduction, we are introduced to Belshazzar. Who is this guy? Well, what you need to know is that about 25 years have passed between chapter 4 and chapter 5. In chapter 5, Daniel is in his 70s. And Herodotus says that there were maybe two or three kings that had come to power in Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar and while Belshazzar is mentioned here in Daniel chapter 5, he was actually only the co-regent king with his father-in-law, and his father-in-law's name was Nabonidus. Now, what we're told is that Nabonidus took the reign as it was given to him by lineage and then decided, you know, this really isn't for me. I think I'm going to take a sabbatical, and he did. He went to live in Saudi Arabia, but before he left Babylon, he appointed his son, Belshazzar, as the king. Belshazzar is probably in his 30s, maybe mid-30s. And it says here that Belshazzar decided that he wanted to throw a party. Now that's basically the language of scripture. Is it says that he invited about a thousand of his nobles. These would have been ambassadors and men of prominence in the kingdom there and said want you to come to the palace to the banquet hall and and we're we're gonna we're gonna have a celebration together and so they brought the wine in and so forth they began to drink we can assume there was music and all kinds of activities that went on in this event now I, I want to pause here to say Sometimes you read this, and especially when you see what follows in just a moment, you wonder, well, does God mind if we party? Does the Lord, is the Lord bothered by the fact that we socialize, that we have celebrations? And I would say to that, absolutely not. God is not bothered with that. However, it is our conduct in the midst of that celebration of, that determines whether or not God is pleased with what we do. And here's also what the Bible does not tell us. For four months prior to this banquet, Cyrus the Great 
the army commander from Persia had laid siege at the city gates of Babylon. You can just imagine what this was like as those sentinels would, would, there were four chariots posted on the walls in Babylon. And if you picture a clock, they were at 12 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 9 o'clock, and they would just rotate riding on that wall and they would just watch and they would observe. And you can imagine the messages that they sent to the king letting him know Cyrus the Great is out there. Cyrus the Great is going to attack. But day after day after day for at least four months, nothing happened. You can imagine what it was like as they were camped out there and the smoke from the fires began to rise and just drift over those walls and in and out of the palace windows. And as those people went about all their daily activities and all the things that they were doing, think about them having a banquet celebrating while the enemy is at the gate. You say, well, I don't, I don't quite understand that. Well, Belshazzar felt like he was totally secure. We talked last week about how the city was built and how it was designed. Herodotus says that there was enough grain in the granaries in Babylon to feed people who lived in Babylon for 20 years. The Euphrates River ran right through it. They had arable land. They, 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 they grew crops there, not just in Babylon, but outside Babylon city walls for sure. But all the grain was brought indoors and it was housed and it was and he was he felt so secure there. You say, well, how many people were in Babylon at that time? Only 1.2 million. Now you think about that. He felt so secure that he could feed. 1.2 million people without ever going outside the city gates. They had everything that he needed and he felt so secure in that situation. He said, I'm not going to meet with my military. I'm not going to strategize of how we're going to protect ourselves or how we're going to counterattack or anything else that we're going to do. We are going to party. Party, party, party. And I can only imagine that when everybody got there and he gave the downbeat and they began to play, the first song that they sang was, this is my party and I'll die if I want to. And as they began to drink, this thought just came into his mind. You know what he said? Hey, hey, somebody come here. I want you to go over to the museum, maybe across the street, around the corner, wherever, and I want you to get those goblets. I want you to get those vessels that my father, who was actually his grandfather, there's no word for grandfather, grandparent, grandson, grandchild in the Hebrew language. And say, I want you to go and I want you to get those that my grandfather brought from Jerusalem. Bring them in here. We're going to drink from those. Now, now these were vessels that had been dedicated to the worship of the one true God. This was the God of Moses, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These were the vessels in the temple. And as he began to drink from them, it's, it's evident here that they begin to say, you know, let's offer some toast. Who wants to offer a toast here? And they begin to praise the gods, little g, plural, gold, and silver, and iron, and wood, 
and bronze. Now I want you to think about what they're doing there and relate it back to what the ancient Israelites had been taught. And I'm basically talking about the laws of Moses as God gave them to him in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before you. You shall not make unto thee any graven image. Remember, all of the commands that God had given to Moses, to the ancient Israelites. You see, folks, those apply to every people everywhere, not just Israel. Not just to the Jews, not just the ancient Hebrews. Those commands are built into the fabric of every culture and every society who's ever lived, is living, or will exist. God is the only true God. And what were they doing here? Basically spitting in His face. Basically defying Him, denying that He even exists, that He has anything to do with any person in the world. And they were basically making fun of him. Now that's what Belshazzar is doing at this very moment. Let's move from the shallow celebration to the shocking revelation. Look at what it says in verse 5. Suddenly, you love the language? Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Now, our students, pardon me, I want to ask them a question. Do y'all have any classroom at school that has a blackboard on it? Anybody? It's all whiteboard right now, right? You have the expo markers, you smell them and then write on, on the wall, right? They don't know what a blackboard is. How many of you went to school with a blackboard? Let me see your hand, just to wake everybody up. All right, most of us went to school with a blackboard. Some of you say, I had it in kindergarten. Well, think about, anybody ever take their nail on the blackboard? That's kind of what I'm thinking this might have been like in Daniel 5, 5, when it says suddenly a hand appeared. No arm. No torso, no body, no, no image of a person, just a hand, the handwriting on the wall. This is where we get that phrase from. Have you not seen the handwriting on the wall? Oh, the handwriting was on the wall, but they denied it. They, didn't, you know, they ignored it. So this is where that comes from. And the king sees, and you can imagine how it begins to write on the wall, and I just think that that made the musicians play off key, made them, you know, and everybody just kind of died down and trying to figure out what's going on. Now, by the way, let me just paint the picture for you here. Archaeologists within the last 100 years have actually uncovered the very room where they think this banquet took place. You could have easily put anywhere from five to 7,000 people in this room and there was a little elevated place where the king would sit so that everybody could see the king at any point in the room. Now, I get this, this is a totally different, this, this is out beyond my comprehension. I, you know, kings, monarchs, presidents, they have access to treasury and resources that you and I don't have access to. So it's not a problem for them to feed this kind of people. Now for you and me, especially when you've got daughters and they get married and you look at the invitation list and you're trying to figure out how am I going to feed all these people at the reception and you're calculating the expense there, you know it can get really expensive, right? I just want you to know that this doesn't even compare with other banquets that have taken place in history. As a matter of fact, Alexander the Great 
on the day he married, now he footed the bill. He didn't ask his wife to do it because she couldn't have, or her family. He fed over 10,000 people. Over 10,000. There was actually another Persian king who when he wanted to celebrate the birth of, or the, the birth and then uh, had the birth of a daughter and the marriage of a daughter all at the same time. Are you ready for this? Historians tell us he fed at one time a sit-down meal 69,543 people. Put it in perspective, the Superdome in New Orleans will hold 70,000 people. You say, oh, well, it's the size of the Superdome. Have you ever been to the Superdome? You're sitting like this. These people spread out when they ate. But we're talking about a place much larger than the Superdome in New Orleans where this Persian king came and fed all of these folks. We're talking about multi-course meals, appetizers, salad, main course, entree, you know, the whole thing. We're talking about huge space. So what Belshazzar is doing here is not unprecedented, but yet he brings everybody in and thousand nobles they're going to bring wives concubines they're going to bring some other folks you know probably had the RSVP and said I'm going to bring about 40 more so we're talking probably five six thousand people here that and when the handwriting on the wall I guarantee you the place falls hush then look at what it says in verse six I love this I love this phrase don't get me started then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together who says the Bible is not graphic, right? All the blood just kind of flowed out of his face and his knees began knocking and his hip joints went. I think he probably stood up when he saw the handwriting on the wall. But when it says his hip joints went slack, he sat down pretty quick. Now, obviously, he's bothered by what he sees. He doesn't know what it means, but he's bothered by what he sees. Why is the king bothered? Why, how did he not know that, that, the, that the message on the wall was saying, hey, it's good that you're celebrating because you don't have to worry about Cyrus the Great. He's going to go away. I'm going to take care of him. How did he know it wasn't a supernatural message that was positive? I'm going to tell you why. He had a guilty conscience. He knew what he was doing was wrong. Guess what, folks? I've discovered that oftentimes that is the case when something is mentioned, maybe even alluded to in a conversation or a sermon or a song or whatever it is, and we are bothered by it. It's sometimes the Lord's way of just kind of snapping his fingers or nudging us a little bit to say, you need to pay attention. The king is bothered, to say the least, and at the end of these verses he calls in all his conjurers and Chaldeans and you know and you look at that and you say what I want to ask the question how did they keep their job how many times in the book of Daniel do you see the kings going to these folks saying would you come interpret this for me and they can't do it the world is run by incompetent people have you figured that out and so he brings these folks in and says I need y'all to tell me what the handwriting is on the wall is all about and he promises them wealth and position and authority he says, I'm going to give you gold. I'm, I'm going to give you purple robes. I'm going I'm to I'm I'm promote you. 
Somebody needs to tell me this. And they couldn't do it. And his, look at verse 9. The king Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his face grew even paler and his nobles were perplexed. Ah, but look at verse 10. The queen entered the banquet hall. There's a lot of speculation about who this queen was, but there are several sources who say that it was probably a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. A daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, the queen. She, we would call her the queen mother. She entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. And the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. That was a common phrase, a way that they greeted the king. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, grandfather... Illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, grandfather, your father the king, Nabonidus, appointed him chief of the magicians and conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because of an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel. Now she names him. Whom the king, that is Nebuchadnezzar, named Belteshazzar. Don't confuse his name with King Belshazzar. Just one letter difference in the English transliteration, but basically means the same. She said, let Daniel now be summoned and he will declare the interpretation. So he sends for Daniel and calls him in and Daniel comes in. And he basically says the same thing to Daniel that he said to the other folks that he brought in and said, I need y'all to interpret the handwriting on the wall. Now, in my mind, in my imagination, Daniel walks in. He's walking toward the king. He's looking to his right. I'm just looking toward you. And he sees the handwriting on the wall, and he sees what it is, and he stops to speak to the king. And the king says, I need to know what that means. Daniel, if you can answer it, I'm going to give you money. I'm going to give you gold. I'm going to promote you. I'm going to do so many things to reward you with it. And look at what happens in verse 17. Daniel answered and said before the king, O king, live forever. Y'all following along? He didn't say that, did he? Why? He knew the king wasn't going to live forever, right? Keep your gifts. Oh, I love that. <clears throat> Keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. Why, why, did he, why did he say that? Who, who wants to be promoted in a kingdom that's going to last for about another 45 minutes? <laughs> it's like Napoleon. When Napoleon was defeated, you know what he was doing? He was promoting officers. And every one of them were executed the next day. So he says, I, I'm going to promote you, Daniel. Come on, tell me what all this means. I will read the inscription to the king... And make the interpretation known to him. And he's going to do that. But I want you to notice first. Daniel preaches a sermon to Belshazzar. Listen to it. Sovereignty, grandeur, glory and majesty. The most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar. Your grandfather. And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive, and whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, 
And his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, Allah chapter 4. He was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beast and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it to whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, grandson Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew this. You realize what he's saying? King, why are you doing this? You know exactly what happened to your grandfather. And that faith, I believe, was probably transferred down to a son, a son, and maybe his other family. But just because it was transferred didn't mean it was received and accepted. It doesn't mean that anybody else acted on it. He says, Belshazzar, you were given light, illumination. And you didn't respond to that light. Verse 23. You've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And they brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines have been drinking wine for them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand but the God in whose hand your life and breath and all your ways you have not glorified. You know that little song we sing, he's got the whole world in his hands? That's basically what Daniel is saying. The God who lets you breathe, who lets you go to bed at night and sleep through the night and wake up the next morning, that God you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him and this inscription was written out. And this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel, upharzen. This is Chaldean language. And this is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put it into it. Notice the word mene is the only word mentioned twice, and that's for emphasis. It means counted and recounted. Counted, accounted. Counted, counted again. That, that, that's, that's what it means. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, that's the singular version, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Here's the sudden condemnation. Then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple, put a necklace of gold around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he had authority as third ruler in the kingdom. And that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. And so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. You remember Cyrus the Great at the gates? They weren't pounding on the gates. They weren't shaking their fists or shields in the, in, in, at, the, at the sentinels who were, who were circling on top of the, of the wall there in Babylon. You know what they were doing? At night when they could not be seen. They were building trenches to divert the waters of the Euphrates rivers. And as the water level was lowered, it was said that the militia from Cyrus the Great marched in array under the city gates in water about this deep 
into the city until they infiltrated the city. And according to Herodotus, not a single spear was thrown except the one that pierced the heart of Belshazzar the king. Herodotus even says that it was October the 12th, 392 B.C., on the night that Babylon fell. You say, well, that's, that's, that's an interesting story. That's about an ancient king who met his demise. God showed up and told him. and he, Well, here's, here's the thing, folks. You see, it's a contrast between the way people live without Christ and the way we're supposed to live with Christ. Belshazzar represents those who live without Christ, and for them, anything goes. It doesn't matter if there's an enemy or conflict or concern of any kind. It's, it's let's live life to the fullest. And I think the majority of us in this room get that. We know that. There are people who start the week on Monday and say, oh, I hate that it's Monday. I got to go back to work. Got to start the week over. What if I can just live till Wednesday, then TGIF's coming. And thank goodness when that whistle blows, when I punch that clock, when the day ends, it is party Time. And they think that Saturday and Sunday basically belong to them, right? I mean, the weekend was made for Michelob. That's what they promote anyway, right? That's the way people, and I want to tell you something, folks. Even Christians can get in that mindset. Even Christians can slip back into thinking that, you know, this idea of going to church twice on Sunday and maybe even a prayer meeting or a Bible study group other time, that's for the birds. I mean, nobody needs to go to church that much. It's not important. And before you know it, you know, you're just over and over again and over and over again, you're, you're just inching away, inching away from what you know is true and what you know is right and what you know is good and wholesome for yourself and for your family. When the Bible says it over and over, it condemns drunkenness. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, for Christians, listen to this now, do not be drunk with wine, but be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. I love that, because what that means is that you and I do not need an artificial, out-of-body substance to have a good time. Our thoughts, our feelings, our affections ought to be centered on God himself and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you something. Some of us in this room may have never had this experience, but I've had several in my life when there is light and revelation and understanding and wisdom given to me, I burst out in laughter. Sometimes tears are streaming down my face. When all of the things that I understand about God seemingly come together and it's like the formation of a diamond in the coal when God says I want to give you this nugget of truth and finally all the theological implications and spiritual truth come together and I say Lord oh my goodness all this time I've missed it but now I understand it and I get it God give me the strength and power to live in it that's the kind of party I want to have when you've had that kind of understanding you don't have trouble reading the Bible. You don't have trouble praying. You don't have trouble trying to figure out, Lord, where are you and how can I make sense of all of this? Does that mean you enjoy everything that life gives you? Absolutely not. But old Belshazzar, young, 
relatively speaking. The enemy was at the gate. He, I, didn't, I don't care. Let's have a party. And suddenly, suddenly, God just interjects himself into that party and says, I've had enough. You see, God's judgment, folks, is slow, but it is sure. And it is thorough. And sometimes God gets our attention that way. And the message was, I've counted your days, Belshazzar, and your number's up. The Bible says that our days are numbered as soon as we arrive on this planet. He counts the hairs on our head. He knows the days that we'll be on this planet. And every day is an opportunity for us to love him, honor him, serve him, glorify him. The question is, will we do that? It wasn't a good message for Belshazzar. But I am grateful that I can end this message on a positive thought reminding you that Romans 8.1 says, For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. No condemnation for you. Does that mean that we can live life the way we want? Of course not. Absolutely not. What it means is that we do not have to fear today, tomorrow, anyone, anything. Because our hope and our lives are firmly planted in the security of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just like that song that we sang a few minutes ago, Nothing can pluck us from his hands. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. And I want to walk you through a prayer time, just, just briefly, just, just 30, 40 seconds. I want you to ask yourself, Lord, have you been trying to get my attention about anything? Is there anything in my life that I've strayed from that I know is dishonoring you? Then, then Lord, help me. Help me ask forgiveness for that and help me return to you. Maybe you're here this morning and you know of someone who's not living the life that they should live. It may be that they've never trusted Christ. And you know that there will come a day when their life too will be numbered. And the end will come. Maybe you want to pray for that individual or that family. And pray, Lord, would you extend grace if you can, if you're willing. Lord, give them another opportunity to, to turn to you, to trust Christ and to live for him. And, and Father, in this moment, I pray that you would speak to every person who's here and remind us, like Nebuchadnezzar, like Belshazzar, we too can take your place of authority in our lives. We don't understand this, but you allow us to do it. And when we do that, we've dishonored you. We, we've defamed you and dethroned you. Father, I pray you'd forgive us for those times. Help us not fear you to the point that we shrink in your presence. 
but let us fear you with the utmost respect and reverence. Believing that if we return to you, you will accept us and forgive us. And establish our, our steps and our thoughts. Father, if there's any person here this morning who needs to come to Christ, give them the freedom and the courage to do that. If there's any person or family here that as Christians believe that you would bring them to be a part of this church family, let them come and inquire of how to do that. In whatever way you would speak, let us surrender all and live for Jesus. We pray this in His name for His sake.